We'll take our Bibles and turn to the little book of Titus, um, right after First and Second Timothy. We are looking, uh, my son mentioned this morning that this is a passage that kind of steps on my toes, and it does. A lot of passages have a habit of stepping on our toes, but that one in particular, uh, that one and also the passage that talks about that we'll give an account of every idle word. That bothers me quite a bit. But there are a lot of idle words that flow out of my mouth. But anyway, um, this, is a, this is a very good little book, and I'm excited about it, what, how the Lord is using it in my heart, in my life. And as we look at it, we are kind of, I'm kind of rehearsing some of the overflow that the Lord has impressed upon my life as we've been looking at it. So um, let's ask his blessing on this time, and then we will look at the text. Dear Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for loving us. It was mentioned this morning that we are appreciative, not only the fact that, uh, that, uh, that what you're doing in our lives, but the fact that you're actually working in our lives and I as this morning particular was just really thankful to see how hearts and lives of people here have been uh, investing time and have a heart and a passion for your word and your truth and that they're they're interested in that that is something that I can't do uh, but you do and I am so thankful to you for that and I thank you for working in other hearts and lives and I ask you to work in my heart in my life to help me become one that is faithful to you, who could actually um, be or shoot for the goal of being called a man of God. Uh, it's the coffee mug expresses that was given to me some time ago. And I think I just thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness to us. And thank you for this time. Thank you so much for your love for us. Now ask your blessing upon the word. And uh, as we look at these things and for a few minutes, that you will. Bless them to our hearts and work to make us more like the Savior. And we ask it in his name with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, we looked at the first uh, four verses or so, and we're down, down to verse 5, which is dealing with ministerial qualifications. First few verses were like a salutation. Then verse 5, Paul says, for this reason... Uh, he's writing to, to Titus. He said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, which just reminds us that Paul had been working in Crete with Titus, and now he's left him there. He's going on probably from it, um, and he's asking uh, Titus to be involved in that church. And uh, being that involved in that church in the very important work of appointing elders, and uh, that just in passing is an extremely important responsibility. And uh, it is very significant that Titus is the one that is receiving this challenge from Paul because Titus was a Gentile Christian. He was not circumcised. He was one of the ones that was one of the members or one of the attendees at the Jerusalem Council and was one of the illustrations that was presented by Paul as a believer who was, a, was, was able to grow and become a, a, an effective leader without following the Jewish protocols and the, law, the moral laws of being circumcised and so on and so forth. And so Titus is a, 
a strong illustration and, and kind of an encouragement, I guess, to Gentiles to see how God can work in the hearts of people, irrespective, regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile, that the Lord takes the heart and the purpose, purpose person and the life and transforms them and makes us instruments to be used of him. So Paul is saying that to Titus, I've left you in Crete so that you would set in order to make things straight uh, in the city. Namely, and then he goes into the qualifications, and we started out with, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And we'll stop there, because we're not going to get any further than that this morning. But that kind of gets us started. We started last time in this to look at the idea of being above reproach, which is just a way of saying that, uh, that one of the most important qualifications of a person's life is their life, is how they live, and and uh, that what kind of testimony that their life evokes in the lives of others, and how they uh, the the passions that they have that are reflected in their actions. And so we talked about that, and uh, the fact that he is called to be above reproach um, is a very strong standard. We looked at that. If you remember, we talked. We looked at John's. Uh, gospel, and we looked at Jesus confronting Peter there near the end of the gospel and asking Peter three times, uh, he said, Peter, do you love me? Uh, do you love me more than these? And so on and so forth, which I think is a is a pretty, a, a pretty serious confrontation with Jesus pointed right straight to Peter, who had denied him three times, and said, Peter, do you love me? If you do, I want you to take care of my sheep. I want you to feed the flock. I want you to shepherd, do, do the work of a shepherding. So that love for the Savior is, a, is, I think, one of the major motivations for doing this work. That if you love the Savior and you're committed to him, then that overflow will come into your life and you'll be involved in seeking to shepherd his people and be concerned for what's going on with his people. And so we, we talked about that. We talked about the idea of being a shepherd, of putting your life on the line and of caring for others. Remember, we looked at John 10, where Jesus talked about that I am the good shepherd. And uh, that kind of stands in contrast to in that context, there were others that were strangers, uh, the ones that had come before him that were not necessarily faithful there were there was also there were thieves and robbers and there was a hired hand and there's someone who uh leaves the flock and flees when danger approaches but contrast to that jesus said but i am the good shepherd and i lay down my life for the sheep and there is the example that uh, he set and there's the example that we are to follow that we put our lives on the line it's not so much necessarily that we're facing death all the time as it is that we are always having to make choices about what's going to be first in our lives and what's going to dominate the focus of our efforts. And so that, that's a very demanding work. It's a very important work. And that work will bear testimony um, as to whether we are above reproach and what kind of life and what kind of work and what kind of ministry we have. And I say all of that knowing that I'm saying it as standing up here as an example. And I say that knowing that my example is not a good example. It could be better. And uh, it's not something that I'm trying to gloss over. I'm just saying that I am not, I'm not saying that I am the perfect example. I would like to be, but I'm not. 
but uh, we we strive for who one who is the perfect example the great shepherd of the sheep and we we seek to follow him and to live for him and i struggle all the time with who is first in my life probably you do too it's easy to put self first not, not to justify it not to say it's, it's no big deal it is a big deal but the lord has taken uh i don't want to say uh, maybe vessels that are not perfect we call them garbage bags or whatever we are just weakened vessels but we carry a priceless treasure and we are to be an example of a priceless ministry with people that God has called out and wants us to, to minister to them. So that's really important. Now, the second area of um, qualification that's mentioned here, and I move sort of quickly because we're going to run out of time, is the idea of being a husband of one wife. Um, Weist, in commenting about that, talks about being a husband of one wife. And he talks about the different words that are used. And he says, he says literally, the translation is to read a man of one woman. The words when used of the marriage relationship come to mean the husband of one wife. And uh, it, is, it is used in the sense of speaking of a male of the human race. And I don't want to overdo this, and I'm not trying to set up... Uh, a focus of argument over this but when we look at the the idea there in previous text it says if any man is above reproach the english standard version translates that if anyone because it isn't necessarily pointing to a male it's pointing to a person if any person is above reproach and so some may come up to say that that this office of elder is open to male and female but it is not because our verse here now when it talks about the husband of one wife is clearly speaking of a man of one wife it's it's not it's not a debatable issue uh, it may be a debatable issue upon some but those who accept god's word as a final authority it's not a debatable issue and so here he's talking about a man who is a husband and he's a husband of one woman um he we says the two nouns are without a definite article uh which construction emphasizes the character or nature the entire context is one in which the context the character of the elder is being discussed therefore one can translate quote a one wife sort of husband or a one woman sort of man and then we uses the illustration of the airedale which is a dog that is known to have one master they stick to just one person as a master and he says by that that is that that is his nature it's the dog's nature to become attached to only one man his master and since the character is emphasized by the greek construction the elder should be a man who loves only one woman as his wife and it should be his nature to do that and uh i think that's important to understand that now of course my wife is with the lord so it doesn't i'm not quite as, as uh intensely because I am not, not the woman I'm focused on is in heaven right now, but you understand what I'm saying is that she's gone. But some of you, like my son and Larry, both of you are elders, and you do have a living wife, and she should be first in your life, and uh, she should be the one that, that you are most concerned about. And uh, so that, that, that's a pretty important aspect. It really is important. And so he holds that up. A couple of things I want to say in regard to that, that uh, I, I think MacArthur mentioned it and I've seen it. I've seen it also in Weiss and others 
And that is what this verse is not saying. Because sometimes we can add things to the text that are our prejudices, which do not come from the text, but come from maybe our background or upbringing or something like that. And so we don't want to go beyond what the text says, but we do want to be clear about what the text is saying. So first of all, this is not primarily a text that is attacking polygamy uh, because polygamy is addressed for all believers. First Corinthians 7, 20, uh, 7, 2 talks about each man should have his own wife. It's not just elders, it's everybody in the church. This is not some kind of extreme religious position. This is just the thing. We are to have one man and one woman, not two men or two women either, but just one man with one woman. Um, it has been said kind of humorously that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. So mm -hmm. that's, that's uh, anyway, uh, this is the case here that we have um, polygamy is, is, is a sin, but it is not what he's referring to here in this text because that is, that is a sin for all men, not just one who's an elder. Neither is this addressing uh, the issue of somebody whose wife has died a widow uh, and remarried, remarriage is, per, is uh, acceptable. Several passages, Romans 7, 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, 1 Timothy 5, 14. I'll read through this quickly because I think we know these things. But uh, if an if a elder's wife, like my wife, died, I am free to remarry. Of course, we remarry in the Lord, whatever. But if I want to do that, I am free to do that. And uh, so that's that's not what he's addressing here. He's not saying that once you're married, that you're forever married, and you, if your wife dies, you can't remarry. You can't. Neither is this um, saying that marriage is a requirement for an elder, even though some have said that that an elder to be uh, an elder needs to be married. If he's single, he he won't qualify to be an elder until he gets married, and then he has to be a one woman sort of man. It's not saying that either. Uh, Paul is a good example of, a, of a, a man who was a qualification, an elder, apostle, and uh, was not married. And uh, then lastly, one that perhaps might raise most eyebrows is he's not talking about divorce, although the scripture speaks against divorce. Malachi 2.16 says that God hates the issue of divorce uh, and he does not like it, but there are there is one exception in Matthew in the gospel which does not speak of elders, but it does allow for divorce in some circumstances where the spouse has been unfaithful to the mate. It doesn't require it, but it allows it. But neither, and we've seen it in this church where you have two people who before they were saved were divorced and uh, they separated from their spouses and then they met, so being divorced from other people, they met and were married and then they became believers. And divorce is not the sin that is an unpardonable sin. A person that was uh, divorced before they were saved and then they were saved, they then take up, maybe I can say the cross and they seek to be faithful from that point on. And they're not necessarily, in fact, we had an elder in this church had before conversion, well, he and his wife before conversion were previously married and both of them had been divorced. And uh, then they met and they were married and then they became believers and they were, really became a godly couple and uh, God really blessed that and used that. And so these are some of the things that the Bible is not talking about. It simply is saying that a person who is an elder needs to be totally committed uh, to the woman that he is married, needs to be dedicated uh, to his wife. And, uh, and this also 
I think, addresses not just the physical approach, but also I feel like it, it really addresses the entire attitude. Jesus said in the upper room, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he says, if, if anyone looks at a woman, he says anyone, but he's talking about a man. If anyone looks at a woman with lust for her, he has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And uh, th this speaks of, I guess you could say, the, the emotional construction of men. Men are um, physically um, challenged, maybe visually, they're stimulated more than women are. And uh, that men are easy, you, and I know from experience, and I know that men in this room can, you can have your quiet time and be studying and be walking real close with the Lord, and all of a sudden, you can see a picture, you can see a woman uh, walking down the street, very revealing, and it completely turns your heart and mind, at least it does me, turns my heart and mind away from what I've been studying. You understand what I'm saying? And it's just really, we are stimulated that way. And so Jesus warned about that. And that warning, by the way, should be a good warning for the ladies as well, that we don't want to put anything before the men to cause them to stumble or to cause them to lust after us. That we, if we care about our relationship with the Lord, we want our relationship to be a pure relationship and we want our influence to be a pure relationship. Men are easily stimulated that way. And so um, it's, it's, an important, it's an important thing to remember. And I think that husbands, especially elders, all of us, I think we need to be careful um, when we're with the wives and when we are not, not only physically what we do, but emotionally how we look at and what we do with the people around us. I know that that, uh, that is something that I, I do and I try to, to be very careful with, I try to be very careful with that. I'm not always as careful as I should be, but I try to be careful with that. This sexual sin is not the unpardonable sin. And I want you to kind of illustrate that. I, want, I could just tell it to you, but I'm going to get you to turn with me, if you will, to John 8 for just a moment. So we're in Titus, so we turn back over to the gospel of John 8. Now, this is a story that you are very familiar with, and, and you're characterized. I'm sure it has a place in your mind as you think about it. But John 8 is a story of the woman taken in adultery. And I want to read through that with you briefly, just to get the picture here of this, of the vileness of this, and yet how this has become um, an illustration, I think, of, of the power of Jesus to overlook this sin of adultery. And as we doing that, just understand this, that this particular example is um, an example that we are not absolutely certain where it fits in the gospel, which gospel. And and Pete, when you teach this and get to this, you can correct me on all the problems that I get, make the mistake in this. But anyway, let's look at this example. Um, it says in verse 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. So this is early in the morning. Probably the, the fog, the mist is rising up on the ground. He gets up. He has disciples. He comes there to the temple. The temple is where you would normally go to worship. He comes to the temple. The disciples come with him. He's there in the temple. And he begins to teach his disciples. Well, after a little while, verse 3 says, the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a familiar group that we have gotten familiar with, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. We stop there for just a moment. 
can you imagine the humiliation and the embarrassment that this woman is being going through now having been caught like that they jerked her out of bed she probably doesn't have anything on if she has anything maybe it's a shawl or, or, or something that she's grabbed to wrap around her but she's not real fair that she's there i mean if she was fully clothed it wouldn't be very convincing that she'd been caught in adultery they grabbed her and jerked her over there they're using her not because they care about the the sin of adultery not because they are concerned for this woman they wanted to use her as an attack against jesus and they want to level their charge against him. And they're willing to walk over her and embarrass her publicly. This, this humiliation is hard to imagine. I'm sure that if she had could, could uh, move to another place in the world to get away from it, she would do it. It's just humiliation. Every, every time she sees somebody, it would be very embarrassing for her. And so they're using her for that. And so they bring this woman. They drag her up there, set her in the middle of the court. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They're setting a trap. They've orchestrated this. They've got the scene set up the way they want to set it. They've got a trap set for Jesus, and he can do one of two things. He can say that the woman is guilty, stolen, and, and it's going to make a lot of people upset at him. It's going to be uh, harsh, plus it's going to be something that he, he didn't come to display wrath. He came to display grace and mercy, and they know that. It's what interesting to me that they're able to see through that and they know they know what his response is going to be, but they come. And by the way, we will read later that they have stones already have because they're in the court, but they're not stones. It's a tile floor and there's not a lot of stones lying around. So they came with the stones. They're prepared to stone her and they're bringing her before the Lord. They're setting him down in the temple. And so they say, what do you say? So you can say either she's stoned, she's guilty, or she's not guilty, in which case now he's violating what? The law of Moses. So either way, he's on the horns of a dilemma. And either way he goes, he's going to be found guilty. They set the stage. They set the parameters. They're ready to pull the, the noose over his neck. And they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus, stooping down with his finger, wrote to the ground. Now, I, I know that this is where we're going to probably differ. He was in the temple. It was a tile there. He couldn't be really writing anything down there. But the, the term they're writing on the ground could be tracing. And I think that's what he's doing. With his finger, he was just tracing around the scrabs in the, in the sand or in the, on the ground. The question is that you would ask is, why was he doing that? I think I know. I think there are two reasons why he was doing that. One of them, I've done myself. At Lowe's. I've been up there and I've been there when women have come up, nice looking women, attractive women that are not well clad. They stand up there and you guys know what I'm talking about. You'll see some women come up there and it's like that they're doing everything they can to, to show their bodies off and they stand there in front of you. <clears throat> I, not always, but I try to always, if, if I see them coming, I try to make it a point that when I look at them, I look them in the eye. And when I deviate my attention, I try to do something else to, to, Turn my attention away. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. Here's this woman there, taken out there in public, and she has nothing on. And I think he's turning his attention away from her and from the, the attraction there because he was a man. He was attempted as all men are. And he was turning his way to other things, his attention to other things, and uh, dealing with this issue. So I think that's the first thing he was doing, was, was just turning his attention away from the, the physical attraction there. But secondly, and even maybe more important than that, he was setting the stage for the accusers because when he stooped down and started writing, they, they kept accusing and accusing and accusing. 
the entire audience that was gathered around that, their focus was not focused on Jesus because he was stooped down. It was focused on the chart, the Pharisees, the scribes. They were leveling their charges against Jesus. They were asking, what do you say? What do you say? She was taken in adultery. What do you say? And they were vehemently making those charges against Jesus. And every eye was watching them until he stood up. When he stood up, every ear was, every mouth was quiet. Every ear was open. And every, the attention of everybody now turned to Jesus. And what did he do? He said, let those without sin cast the first stone. And then he turned down, he stooped back down, and he started tracing again to the ground. All right, what happened? Every eye heard, every ear heard that. Now every ear turns, every eye turns back to the Pharisees. Now they're on the horns of a dilemma. The stage has been turned. Now they're the ones that are standing before the trial. And what are they going to do? It says in the text, beginning with the oldest, they drop their stone, beginning with the oldest, one by one. They turn and they walk through the crowd and out humiliated and embarrassed because they have tried to trap Jesus. Jesus turns to the woman, basically, and tells her, uh, neither, where are your accusers? Where are those that are accusing you? They're gone. They're not here anymore. Neither do I. He's the only one that could actually have accused her, honestly. He turned, he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. That sin of adultery is not the sin that is the unpardonable sin. Even though it's a sin and it's wrong, it's not the unpardonable sin, and we're not to consider it there. And the illustration of Jesus with the woman taken in adultery is a good illustration to prove that to us. And so Proverbs tells us that he who confesses his transgression will not, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Aren't you glad that's the kind of God we serve? We serve a God who is filled with compassion. He is rich in mercy, if we'll come, if we'll confess our sins before him. Um, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I have not come to call those who feel that they are okay and that they have everything they need to have it all together. I've not come to call you. I've come to call those who know that they're guilty, know that they're lost and are, con are convicted under their sin. I've come to call them to repentance. That's the reason I came, and that's what I'm doing. And so here's this picture. Now, these two sins, and I'm going to quick, I have to be quick because I'm going to be out of time, but I, I was reading MacArthur, and he talked about two people in the Old Testament among many, which I thought was a good illustration of that. He was talking about David. He was talking about Solomon. Uh, David is one who's called a man after God's own heart. And he is a man that, that uh, did well. First uh, Kings 15, 5 says that David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he did not turn aside from anything uh, that he commanded him all the days of his life, except for one area. And the area is in the case of Uriah the Hittite, and this is a relationship with, with Bathsheba. Here's this situation where the one blemish upon David's life is that situation, that sexual situation with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. That, that's the one sin that becomes a sin. Now, it's not that David um, was lost his salvation, but that was a turning point in his walk with the Lord. And the same is true with Solomon. The same thing happened with Solomon. Solomon, Nehemiah uh, 13, 26, Solomon was a king that uh, he, he was, there were many, see, there was no king. It said many nations, in many nations, there was no king like Solomon. He was the one who had greater wisdom, although he didn't apply it to his life many times. He was the one that had greater wisdom, 
No one was like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king or ruler over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him to sin. The point is, and that's what I want to get, and that's why I'm moving on now. The point is this, that sexual failure, sexual departure from the standard of, of, of being faithful to your wife is a serious sin, and it will blemish your walk with the Lord. It's a very, very serious sin. And so that's what he's saying here in, the, in these verses of this, is that we know Paul says in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, it tells to flee immorality run from it run from immorality every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and that you are not your own you have been bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body that's in first corinthians 6 18 to 20 and so that we we want to take that seriously and in this this particular passage here we talks about being the husband of one wife which is the first illustration after being above reproach the first one that kind of breaks down there that's a that's an important standard now the next one has to do with children who believe that are not accused of dissipation and rebellion and we'll look at that next time because that's a pretty interesting thing as well it's a very important illustration now, i know that all of us as parents are concerned about that and uh, so I'm, that's, a, that's an important area as well. But we'll look at that next time. Any thoughts or comments before I close the prayer? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for these words and for this example. I do pray for my heart. Um, I know what it means to go through lust and temptation. I'm now alone, and so I've probably come under greater uh, temptation in one sense. And I just pray that um, you'll help me to be faithful to you, to take you most seriously. I pray that for all of us. I, I thank you for these people. And I thank you for their heart. And I pray that you'll help us to put Jesus first in every area of our lives. And remember that we are living not just for the moment, but we are living for eternity. And we want to glorify you. Help us to do that in our bodies as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And if there are those here that don't know you, Lord, that's so important. I pray that you'll help us to seek you out, to spend time in your word, to surrender our lives to you. If you're speaking to us right now, I pray that we'll just turn our hearts and our lives over to you and to seek to surrender to you and to serve you and put you first. And I pray this in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen.